Hi there, I'm Shayna, and you are listening to Real Twisted Sisters. If you are not a regular listener, please be aware that we cover twisted and oftentimes very disturbing true crime cases. Be advised, these episodes may be triggering to some. Guess what, everybody? This is Real Twisted Sisters' 30th episode. 30. I have brought 30 of these episodes to you. If you have listened to all 30 of the episodes and you want more, go ahead and join our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Sisters. we got a few bonus episodes out there for you, so if you're in a bind, you just need another true crime twisted episode, jump onto the Patreon page. Also, I would like to ask all of you to please, please, please go ahead and give us a review. Um, I believe that is one of the best ways for us to get out there in the world, for people to be able to find us easily when they search for a certain topic or a certain podcast. Um, I know not every platform offers you the ability to rate and review us, but if you could just take the time to get on whatever platform You need to, uh, I believe Amazon Music is one that will allow you to um, jump on there, review us. If you give us a five-star review, send me a little uh, screenshot of it. Email it to me, send it through Instagram, DMs, however you want to get it to me. Send me that review and I'm going to go ahead and give you a shout out on here for giving us that wonderful review. I ask you to send it to me because... It's hard for me to see sometimes. I was really, really happy when I got, I believe it was on Amazon Music, and I saw some reviews on there, and I was like, oh, that is awesome. I love it, but I didn't know they were there. I never got notified. Um, Of course, I don't just jump on every platform every day and see what's new on there. Maybe I should do that, but anyways, if you do review us, send me a little screenshot of that. Uh, Review five stars, whatever you say. It could be just, uh, hey, love the podcast hey, love your true crime episodes, whatever. It could just be, hi, how are you? I don't care what the comment is, but send me a screenshot. We'll get you a shout out. All right, well, let's get started on this Real Twisted Sisters 30th episode. This is a very strange story. A bit different than what I typically cover here on Real Twisted Sisters. This is a case actually cases, plural, enveloped with mystery, conspiracy, and corruption. This is the mysterious deaths of Tate Rowland and Terry Trosper. I am currently posted up near Wichita Falls, Texas, and not too far down the road is a little town called Childress. It might sound familiar to you. You may have heard some strange stories coming out of Childress. This, my friends, is the strangest. So let's go. Childress is a small town, like super small town, pretty much out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, One of those fun ones where everyone knows everyone and has shit to talk about everyone, whether it's true or not. Like, you know how that goes in small towns. Nobody really cares. If If they hear a story and it's exciting, it doesn't matter if it came from the horse's mouth. It doesn't matter if it is fact or fiction. They are going to repeat that story. Now, I visited... The town of Childress a couple times while I've been um, staying over here. From what I could see, it looked to be nice. Like it was a nice, clean town. It seemed to be kept up with. 
Most importantly, I did not see any sign of satanic cults, which is a big issue here in my story. Most importantly, no sign of satanic cults could be found. I mean, I only spent a few hours over there, but I wasn't catching any creepy vibes. That was until I drove north out of town to try to find the location of Tate Rowland's death. Childress is a town with a population of about 6,000 people. Now, this story took place back in the late 80s to the early 90s, and the population really hasn't varied much between then and now. The town was founded in 1887 and became known for its cotton fields and gins. It was also given the nickname Gateway to the Panhandle, which I'm not sure is supposed to be a good thing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of the panhandle, but to each their own. Maybe people are like, yes, it's the panhandle. We're going through the gateway to the panhandle. I don't know. Whatever. Childress is in a remote region of northern Texas and is surrounded by cotton fields, like I said, and several dirt roads weaving through cow pastures. Childress is rated to have some of the most affordable housing in Texas. And key point here, a crime rate lower than 73% of all other cities and towns in Texas. Seems like a pretty safe place to live. Um, you know, modest housing, nice clean town, whatever. Seems to be pretty legit to me if you like living in the remote northern part of Texas. Now, if Childress sounds familiar to you, Childress, Texas, and you're not from the area, you may be into the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre just as much as I am. Although some people are under the false impression that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie was based off of a murder in Childress, Texas, that is not true, Childress does come up in the movie. Now we're talking about the original here, the, the old school gangsta original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was actually loosely based off of the serial killer Ed Gein and sort of mashed up with some other stories of murders and serial killers. So it's really not based off of one person. So get that out of your head right now. That's not right. Now, in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Gunnar Hansen, you'll hear Childress being brought up in the beginning of the movie. One of the characters, Sally, asked to use a phone, and the old man, you know, the creepy old man, says that they don't have a phone and they'll need to go to Childress for one. You know, I just said that the town Childress wasn't really creepy and Stella, and, and Stella until I started driving out of town and just knowing what happened outside of town, you know, gave me the creeps a little bit, but it's, it is so remote, you guys. Like, you know, I'm from a small town in Minnesota, but there, there's towns nearby mine. You know, I was right off of Interstate 35. There was a, not a large town, but a you know, medium-sized town about 10 minutes away from me, another medium-sized town 10 minutes away from me, a large city about 60 miles away from me. Well, when I say remote Texas, so once you get outside of town, you, you know, you better have a full tank of gas. You better be prepared to be away from any type of civilized anything when you're up in these areas. Um, Northern Texas, I would say, you know, for instance, for instance, where I'm staying right now is it, a very, very small town. Um, it does have gas stations, little restaurants, fast food, whatever. So it's livable. But when you start going out of town, you can get into places that 
you know, you are an hour, two hours away from the nearest gas station, away from any type of civilization. It is just fields and roads. So, you know, when I say remote, I mean remote. It's not an hour drive to a big city. It's like a three hour drive to a big city. So anyways, just giving you an idea of, you know, it is, it's like tumbleweeds blowing across the road. So just envision that outside of Childress. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, as I said, I thought Childress was a nice small town back in the 1980s and early 90s. During the Satanic Panic era, Childress was hit hard with strange occurrences leading to conspiracies and overall hysteria. Back in 1988, a 17-year-old kid named Jansen Tate Rowland, who went by Tate, was a well-known teenager in Childress. He was popular, he was outgoing, boisterous, but somewhat of a troublemaker. Tate had a blue Ford short bed pickup truck with a real fancy stereo system that he was super proud of. He would often show off as he drove up and down the mile-long stretch of U.S. Highway 287, which was referred to as the drag. I think every small town had a drag. So in 1988, Tate was dating a cute, uh, petite little blonde girl named Karen Hackler, who also lived there in Childress. Karen came from a financially well-off farming family, but Tate and Karen were a crazy couple. According to friends, they would often fight, they would bicker a lot, uh, they were both very jealous people, and, you know, given they were still in high school, and they both had several friends, it just made those those jealousy issues extremely common. Like, you know, Karen would see Tate talking to another girl in school. There they, they're off on some crazy fight. Well, most weekends, Tate would be chasing Karen down the drag or vice versa due to these jealousy issues. Um, Tate would see Karen in somebody else's car and he would get livid. And, you know, just what teenagers do most of the time. It's drama. They would often break up and then get right back together. High school relationships can often be very difficult. <laughs> you know, it's the, the stress of it all. It got to a really bad point where Tate became aggressive with Karen. Uh, actually, one night while she was working at a little convenience store there that was located right on the drag, Tate was jealous. He was angry for whatever reason and actually went into this convenience store and jumped up onto the counter in there and started like yelling and screaming at Karen. I think he was throwing things and shit. He was just being a dramatic teenager. But Karen actually ended up pressing charges against Tate at that point. Um, this all took place in January of 88. And, you know, after that, they're like, it... It got out of control. Tate was arrested. Uh, but when they got to court, I believe authorities saw Tate and Karen like hugging and laughing and stuff in the hallway. So uh, the case, it, it was dropped. All the charges were dropped. They determined that they were just being dramatic teenagers and whatever, left it out of the courthouse, which was probably a good idea. It actually, this whole occurrence though, caused a lot of problems between the two families and it sort of turned into a like a Hatfield and a McCoy feud there in Childress. Karen's family, the Hacklers, and Tate's family, the Rollins, were going back and forth about whose child did and said what and who was harassing who and who needed to stay away from who. It just 
caused a lot of problems. So although the couple did end up reconciling, Tate decided that he needed to get out of Childress for a little while. So he actually went to Louisiana to stay with some family members. Well, in the spring of 1988, Tate made his way back to Childress. He just wasn't the type to let a lost love keep him down. One friend noted that Tate would only really get down and upset and talk about Karen after he'd had a few drinks. And we all know how that goes. Like, I always have a little pity party for myself when I drink. <laughs> so we're all back in Childress at this point. Karen has married a young man from the town and Tate has moved on with his life, presumably. He's still partying with friends and having a good time as a single young man. On July 26th of 1988, Tate had been seen in the parking lot of a United grocery store. Now, I sat in this parking lot also right after I got some food. I didn't just sit there to be like, let me get the feeling of this parking lot. I was eating my food in the parking lot, but it's right there on the drag that they would, you know, drive their cars up and down. So, I, th you know, it's, it's summer. He's a teenager. He's probably just hanging out. Uh, he had actually made plans to that evening to step in as a coach for the Women's League softball game. Uh, and he had talked to a friend and they were going to meet up after the game and share a 12-pack of beer. Well, before the softball game... He was seen getting into a car with his friend, 15-year-old Chad Johnston. The two of them then drove away. As far as everyone who knew Tate was concerned, he was doing well. Nothing out of the ordinary. He was the same old drinking some beer sometimes, cruising the strip sometimes. Nothing out of the ordinary was done or said by Tate that day until 6 o'clock that evening. It was at that time that Tate's friend Chad walked into the home of Tate's dad and stepmom, Jimmy and Brenda, and made a horrifying announcement. He said that Tate had just hanged himself. What? According to Jimmy and Brenda, Chad showed no emotion. He was calm. He was not crying or frantic. It was almost like he was just relaying facts to the Rollins. Jimmy, Brenda, and Chad rushed out to where Chad stated Tate had hung himself. They drove a couple miles north of town to a gravel road dividing two cotton fields. There on the side of the road, hanging from the largest branch on a horse apple tree, was Tate. Jimmy had to cut his own son down from the tree limb. Tate was gone. So right away, something just seemed off. You know, trust me, I understand that everyone handles trauma differently, everyone grieves differently, but Chad, what is going on, my guy? Chad was a couple of years younger than Tate and was known to be the, in quotes, unpopular kid. Uh, he was actually new to the area at that time and liked hanging out with Tate because Tate added excitement to Chad's normally very dull life. So I guess if he didn't know Tate that well, it wouldn't be like he's completely devastated and bawling because he lost his best friend. But dude, you just watch someone hang themselves and you just leave the scene drive to the Rollins' house and just calmly explain that Tate had Tate is hanging from a tree out there. Let's go out and check it out. Just seems strange to me. I would think like just seeing a dead body would make you a little bit more worked up, but whatever. I can't blame a guy for not getting overly excited, I guess, about a dead body. I don't know. Of course, police are called to the scene and they want to talk to Chad right away about what happened. 
Well, Chad tells them that him and Tate had driven out to a small grove of trees that they like to hang out at. They like to listen to music out there and drink some beer. They, they had a few beers, and then Tate grabbed a rope, threw it over the horse apple tree limb, and told Chad he was going to hang himself. Chad said he thought he was just joking. Like, you know, Tate was a jokester. Tate went on to tell Chad where he wanted his funeral held. And Chad just, you know, he knew at that point, like, why are you telling me this? You're not going to do anything. Chad then claimed he walked around the car to throw a beer can into the bushes and to make sure no other cars were coming down the road. And when he came back, a mere three minutes later, he said that Tate was dead. Tate was already hanging from the tree. Chad's story just didn't seem to jive. It just didn't. It, it, it was just a strange story. So according to police records, there were two rope burns visible on Tate's neck. One rope burn was above the Adam's apple and one was below. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where a rope mark would be on one's neck after they hang themselves. It will be above the Adam's apple. Police are initially concerned with this finding and wonder if Tate was possibly killed before he was hung from the tree, possibly someone staging a suicide. Well, two days later, on July 28th, Chad is requested back at the sheriff's station for another interview, of course. You know, they're like, mm, this kid's story is sounding funky. Let's get him back in here. Authorities are 100% sure that his first story is not what actually took place. Well, so Chad gets back into the sheriff's station and is asked again what happened on the 26th. This time, he has a different story for investigators. Chad is now saying that Tate actually tried to hang himself twice, but the first time, the rope broke. Chad says after the rope broke, him and Tate both went back to Tate's house, which was about a five-minute drive, to get more rope. Then back at the tree, Tate stood on the hood of the vehicle tied one end of the rope around his neck and one end around the tree limb and stepped off the hood. Again, Chad, what the fuck? What is wrong with you? Chad went on to explain that he didn't tell his version of the true story at first because he didn't want to get in trouble for not stopping Tate. Chad also explained how often Tate would talk about suicide and how upset and depressed he was over losing Karen. Weird, though, that Chad is the only one to make those remarks about Tate. All other family and friends said that Tate was bouncing back just fine. Now, again, I understand that Tate may be hiding those emotions. He may be hiding those feelings. Maybe he was extremely upset about what happened with Karen. Maybe he didn't feel like his life was going in the right direction, and he took his own life. I just feel like that's probably not what happened here and something is going on with Chad. Well, without any real evidence of foul play and having the statement from Chad that Tate, that Tate took his own life, Tate's death was quickly ruled a suicide. No autopsy was done and Tate's body was prepared for burial. Case closed. End of story. See you guys later. Have a nice week. Just kidding. It was just weird, you guys. After reading all the articles and watching some documentaries, the stories go on for days and days. Like, it's it never stops. So many people have so many stories, and I'm not, of course, going to repeat all those to you because I have no idea if that is real or not. What I'm going to bring to you are the stories that were 
that came right from the sheriff that they could confirm actually happened um, and what came from Tate's family. So now we're at Tate's funeral at the Calvary Baptist Church. It was filled with people as Tate was a very popular kid. His aunt, who had come in from Amarillo, noticed a woman dressed in all black with a black veil covering her face. Um, Think like Winchester, the movie Winchester. Well, she was seated in the back row of the church pews. His aunt asked several other family members and friends if they recognized this woman, whose face was essentially hidden, and nobody did. The lady ended up slipping out without ever talking to anyone. Then, in the middle of the church service, a young man sitting in one of the front rows started chanting the word suicide over and over. Like, uh, creepy. Now take from that what you will. It was reported by several people that this took place, but, you know, it could be explained away. It's strange that an unknown woman is making such a dramatic entrance at a teenage boy's funeral, but who knows? It could be someone who knew him briefly that just decided to go all out with a funeral garb. But later on, it came out that this mysterious woman was a friend of Brenda's, Tate's stepmother, um, I guess she didn't really realize that people were concerned with this woman and she made it known that this was a friend of hers. So mystery solved there. Well, the boy repeating the word suicide, I, I'm not 100% sure what's going on with him, but I mean, he could have just had some type of a disorder. Um, I'm just, I'm not 100% sure. Just a strange occurrence that we're, whatever, that we're, we're looking into. Well, a few days after the funeral, a tip came in from a high school student about something strange that was found near the location of Tate's hanging. About a quarter mile from that horse apple tree, a cow scale was found lodged in a very small tree, and beneath the tree were logs surrounding a pile of rocks. It was weird, and it was ominous, and police actually determined that it was an altar of some type. Now, another strange occurrence happened a few nights after the funeral. A Childress police officer working the night shift drove by the Childress Cemetery, uh, you know, where Tate was buried, and saw a dark figure standing by Tate's grave. When the officer came by a little bit later to check it out, he didn't see anybody right away, so he actually walked over to Tate's gravesite to find that his headstone had been covered with spit, like... um. Like someone had been chewing tobacco and spitting all over his headstone. <sighs> sad and disrespectful. I don't know if it had anything to do with anything else, but it's sad and disrespectful. Some other claims were made stating that a teacher's dog was stolen and, in quotes, sacrificed, and that a burning cross had been seen above Tate's grave. One strange event that was confirmed by a children's officer to be true was that unknown adults were showing up outside of the school trying to pick up random little kids, like just trying to saying like, hey, kid, come over here and get in with me. Um, thankfully, I don't think anything major happened. I don't think any kids were actually kidnapped and no arrests were ever made in those attempted kidnapping cases, but it caused the panic in Childress to grow immensely because of just these these strange stories that were coming out. Everybody seemed to have a story about what they now believed was a satanic cult terrorizing Childress. 
you know, weird shit is now going down in Childress. Or people are just spreading crazy tales to add a bit of excitement to the normally uneventful small town. Um, you know, remember, this is the late 80s. Satanic panic was a very real thing and was now being felt in Childress. So people were just like grabbing that and running with it. They're, yep, it's got to be a satanic cult. You know, I, it was probably little things like you drive down the road, you see a dead animal on the side of the street and you're like... Yep, that satanic cult probably killed that animal, sacrificed to the devil. Personally, I think the whole satanic panic era and everything that was connected to it is a bunch of BS. Like most times people were using that satanic cult as an excuse to cover up what really happened or to some they would use it to justify what had been done or what they did. Um, you know, a lot of murderers would would use that to help their case. They'd be like, well, I, it was the devil. The devil told me to. So that's where this all came about. It just, it was like a snowball effect. One small story led to a larger story and a larger story until all deaths in Childress were blamed on these satanic cult members. Now, I hate to be so blunt. Maybe it might even sound harsh, but ignorant people were making claims that certain people had to be in a satanic cult. They just had to be. When they heard them listening to heavy metal music or seeing them don all black clothes, they just had to be in a satanic cult. It was really sad. So the stories going through Childress were completely insane, whether they were true or not. When all of the students went back to school that following fall, all they were talking about was how Tate was part of a cult and was murdered by other cult members for, get this, not bringing them a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child to be sacrificed. Now, according to this story, which I believe is just that, a story, this child that Tate was supposed to bring them was to be either one of Tate's stepmother's children or one of the four daughters of Tate's sister, Terry Trosper. Authorities in Childress received a bizarre call from the police department in Lockhart, Texas. Now, some articles I read and videos I watched referred to Lockhart as a nearby small town. Lockhart is not near Childress at all. You're looking at a map. Childress is way up north near the Panhandle, uh, near the Oklahoma border. Lockhart is down south, like directly east almost of Austin. It's actually uh, probably about a six-hour drive to get from Childress to Lockhart. Apparently... A girl from Childress was staying in Lockhart and was talking to a Lockhart resident. She told this resident that she had a dream about a boy being hanged by a satanic cult. She said she dreamed that this cult met at an abandoned house with a red porch light in Kirkland, Texas. So now Kirkland is very close to Childress. It's I like east maybe eight miles east down the highway. She went on to say that her parents were involved with that cult and that they had used a car to run down a boy a few years earlier. Now, this was supposedly a, a sacrifice. This boy was a sacrifice for this cult. Now, that's a lot of information taken from a dream. It sounds a little far-fetched to me, but Police actually looked into all this. They went over to Kirkland, and guess what they found? 
a house with a red porch light. They also dug up information regarding a 15-year-old boy who was killed in a hit-and-run accident, but nobody was ever charged in that accident. What's even stranger is that the house with the red porch light burned down shortly after authorities discovered it. Is it a coincidence? I don't know. Do I believe that there is a cult there? No. Strange things continued to occur, or people turned ordinary occurrences into something strange to talk about so they could point the finger at the satanic cult members who were apparently taking over their town. Uh, I feel bad. I feel bad for anybody who listened to heavy metal music or dressed differently. Even, like people were saying, if they found out that you owned a Ouija board, you were involved in the satanic cult. Right around Halloween a confession was made to police. A man named Ray Wilkes claimed that he was a member of a satanic cult that had been at the tree the night Tate died. Ray, he was a good guy. Ray was a 15-year-old boy at the time and had been arrested for stealing a car, driving drunk, and running the car into a utility pole. So, he's a super good kid, you know. That's just the shit that happens in small towns when you got nothing better to do. 15 years old, you get yourself drunk and steal a car and run into a utility pole. No, just kidding. Don't do that, people. After he sobered up, he recanted his story, of course, saying that he was never at the tree that day and that he was so drunk when police picked him up, he doesn't even remember confessing to anything. So they're like, all right, nothing there. Of course, even though he retracted his confession, people around town couldn't help but wonder about the Wilkes family. Some even quickly pointed fingers because the Wilkes had been notorious troublemakers. You know, they were just, they drank, they partied. Some people, including courthouse employees and authorities, believe they saw the words, in quotes, the devil's den, the devil's bin, or I love the devil, painted on the outside of the Wilkes home. It wasn't clear what it said because it had been painted over but could still be seen faintly. Well, Frank Wilkes, Ray's dad, said that it's none of it's none of the above. It has nothing to do with the devil. He said that one day his dumb son decided he was going to paint I Love Letty in big letters on the side of their house to show affection towards a girl he liked. When Frank got home that day, he saw it, got pissed off, of course, and made Ray paint over it. It had nothing to do with the devil, but nobody minded what the truth was and continued to refer to Frank Wilkes' home as the devil's house. Turns out, though, Ray had a solid alibi for the night of Tate's death. So, you know, I don't think they did look into a little bit after he gave that drunken confession. When he recanted, they were like, mm, yeah, he probably didn't have anything to do with it because they found out that he was held in a juvenile detention center. So there it was. Ray was saved by Juvie Hall. Although people were being blamed left and right for being cult members in Childress, nobody's name was slandered more than poor Karen, Nate's former girlfriend. People believe that Karen had lured Tate into the cult. Like, she was already a member of the cult and was like, Tate, come join this family of Satan worshippers. I mean, she did have witchcraft stuff in her home and a Ouija board, so she was probably a satanic cult member. I was probably a satanic cult member, too, when I was 15. Just kidding, I was not, but I did have a Ouija board. 
There was absolutely no evidence of any kind linking Karen to Tate's death. Nothing. Years were going by and full-blown hysteria encapsulated almost every resident in Childress. And it only got worse. Unfortunately, on May 30th of 1991, Tate's older sister, Terry Trosper, was found deceased. Guess where her body was found? None other than the Devil House. Frank Wilkes' home there in Childress, Texas. I am going to stop this episode here. We are going to break this up into two parts. Next week, we are going to get started on what happened with Terry and what this all leads the authorities and Childress to do. It gets very interesting. So stick around for part two next week, folks. If you like this story and you have a case or a story you would like me to cover, go ahead and send an email to realtwistedsisters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at real.twisted.sisters. By the way, I've got some pretty cool pictures I'm going to be posting on there uh, about this episode. And again, if you would like to become a member, you can join us at www.patreon.com slash realtwistedsisters. We'll see you next week for the final part in The Mysterious Deaths of Tate Rowland and Terry Trosper. Bye!